Chapter Three of the Old Adam. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. The Old Adam by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Three. Wilkins's. One. The early adventures of Alderman Mutchin of Bursley at Wilkins Hotel, London, were so singular, and to him, so refreshing, that they must be recounted in some detail. He went to London by the morning express from Knipe, on the Monday week after his visit to the music hall. In the meantime, he had had some correspondence with Mr. Bryany, more poetic than precise, about the option, and had informed Mr. Bryany, that he would arrive in London several days before the option expired. But he had not given a definite date. The whole affair, indeed, was amusingly vague. And, despite his assurances to his wife that the matter was momentous, he did not regard his trip to London as a business trip at all, but rather as a simple freakish change of air. The one certain item in the whole situation was that he had, in his pocket, a quite considerable sum of actual money, destined, he hoped, but was not sure, to take up the option at the proper hour. Nelly, impeccable to the last, accompanied him in a motor to Knipe, the mainline station. The drive, superficially pleasant, was in reality very disconcerting to him. For nine days the household had talked, in apparent cheerfulness, of father's visit to London, as though it were an occasion for joy on father's behalf, tempered by affectionate sorrow for his absence. The official theory was that all was for the best, in the best of all possible homes, and this theory was admirably maintained. And yet everybody knew even Maisie, that it was not so. Everybody knew that the master and mistress of the home, calm and sweet as was their demeanour, were contending in a terrific, silent and mysterious altercation, which, in some way, was connected with the visit to London. So far as Edward Henry was concerned, he had been hoping for some decisive event, a tone, gesture, glance, pressure, during the drive to Knipe, which offered the last chance of a real concord. No such event occurred. They conversed with the same false cordiality as had marked their relations since the evening of the dog-bite. On that evening, Nellie had suddenly transformed herself into a distressingly perfect angel, and not once had she descended from her high estate. At least daily she had kissed him, what kisses! Kisses that were not kisses! Tasteless mockeries, like non-alcoholic ale! He could have killed her, but he could not put a finger on a fault in her marvellous wifely behaviour. She would have died victorious. So that his freakish excursion was not starting very auspiciously, and waiting with her for the train on the platform at Knipe, he felt this more and more. His old clerk, Penkethman, was there to receive certain final instructions on thrift club matters, 
and the sweetness of Nellie's attitude towards the ancient man, and the ancient man's naive pleasure therein, positively maddened Edward Henry, to such an extent that he began to think, Is she going to spoil my trip for me? Then Brindley came up. Brindley, too, was going to London, and Nellie's saccharine assurances to Brindley that Edward Henry really needed a change just about completed Edward Henry's desperation. Not even the uproarious advent of two jolly wholesale grocers, Messieurs Garvin and Quarrel, also going to London, could effectually lighten his pessimism. When the train steamed in, Edward Henry, in fear, postponed the ultimate kiss as long as possible. He allowed Brindley to climb before him into the second-class compartment, and purposely tarried in finding change for the porter. And then he turned to Nellie and stooped. She raised her white veil and raised the angelic face. They kissed, the same false kiss, and she was withdrawing her lips. But suddenly she put them again to his for one second, with a hysterical clinging pressure. It was nothing. Nobody could have noticed it. She herself pretended that she had not done it. Edward Henry had to pretend not to notice it. But to him it was everything. She had relented. She had surrendered. The sign had come from her. She wished him to enjoy his visit to London. He said to himself, "'Dashed if I don't write to her every day.' He leaned out of the window as the train rolled away, and waved and smiled to her, not concealing his sentiments now. Nor did she conceal hers, as she replied with exquisite pantomime to his signals. But if the train had not been rapidly and infallibly separating them, the reconciliation could scarcely have been thus open. If, for some reason, the train had backed into the station and ejected its passengers, those two would have covered up their feelings again in an instant. Such is human nature in the five towns. When Edward Henry withdrew his head into the compartment, Brindley and Mr. Garvin, the latter standing at the corridor door, observed that his spirits had shot up in the most astonishing manner, and in their blindness they attributed the phenomenon to Edward Henry's delight in a temporary freedom from domesticity. Mr. Garvin had come from the neighbouring compartment, which was first class, to suggest a game at bridge. Messieurs Garvin and Quarrel journeyed to London once a week, and sometimes oftener, and, being traders, they had special season tickets. They travelled first class because their special season tickets were first class. Brindley said that he didn't mind a game, but that he had not the slightest intention of paying excess fare for the privilege. Mr. Garvin told him to come along and trust in Messieurs Garvin and Quarrel. Edward Henry, not nowadays an enthusiastic card-player, enthusiastically agreed to join the hand, and announced that he did not care if he paid forty excess fares. Whereupon Robert Brindley grumbled enviously that it was all very well for millionaires. They followed Mr. Garvin into the first-class compartment. That Mrs. Garvin and Quarrel did, in fact, own the train, 
and that the London and North Western Railway was no more than their wash-pot. "'Bring us a cushion from somewhere, will ye?' said Mr. Quarrell casually to a ticket-collector who entered. And the resplendent official obeyed. The long cushion, wrapped from another compartment, was placed on the knees of the quartet, and the game began. The ticket-collector examined the tickets of Brindley and Edward Henry, and somehow failed to notice that they were of the wrong colour. And, at this proof of their influential greatness, Messieurs Garvin and Quarrel were both secretly proud. The last rubber finished in the neighbourhood of Wilsdon, and Edward Henry, having won eighteenpence halfpenny, was exuberantly content, for Messrs Garvin, Quarrel, and Brindley were all renowned card-players. The cushion was thrown away, and a fitful conversation occupied the few remaining minutes of the journey. "'Where do you put up?' Brindley asked Edward Henry. "'Majestic,' said Edward Henry. "'Where do you?' "'Oh, Kingsway, I suppose.' The Majestic and the Kingsway were two of the half-dozen very large and very mediocre hotels in London, which, from causes which nobody, and especially no American, has ever been able to discover, are particularly affected by Midland provincials on the jaunt. Both had an immense reputation in the five towns. There was nothing new to say about the Majestic and the Kingsway, and the talk flagged till Mr. Quarrel mentioned Seven Sacks. The mighty Seven Sacks, in his world-famous play Overheard, had taken precedence of all other topics in the five towns during the previous week. He had crammed the theatre and half-emptied the Empire Music Hall for six nights. A wonderful feat. Incidentally, his fifteen-hundredth appearance in Overheard had taken place in the five towns, and the five towns had found in this fact a peculiar satisfaction, as though some deep merit had thereby been acquired or rewarded. Seven Sachs' tour was now closed, and on the Sunday he had gone to London, en route for America. "'I heard he stops at Wilkins's,' said Mr. Garvin. "'Wilkins's, your grandmother,' Brindley essayed to crush Mr. Garvin. "'I don't say he does stop at Wilkins's,' said Mr. Garvin, an individual not easy to crush. "'I only say I heard as he did.' "'They wouldn't have him,' Brindley insisted firmly. Mr. Quarrel, at any rate, seemed tacitly to agree with Brindley. The august name of Wilkins's was, in its essence, so exclusive that vast numbers of fairly canny provincials had never heard of it. Ask ten well-informed provincials, which is the first hotel in London, and nine of them would certainly reply, the Grand Babylon. Not that even wealthy provincials from the industrial districts are in the habit of staying at the Grand Babylon. No. Edward Henry, for example, had never stayed at the Grand Babylon, no more than he had ever bought a first-class ticket on a railroad. The idea of doing so had scarcely occurred to him. There are certain ways of extravagant smartness which are not considered to be good form among solid wealthy provincials. Why travel first class, they argue, when second is just as good, 
and no one can tell the difference once you get out of the train. Why ape the tricks of another stratum of society? They like to read about the dinner parties and supper parties at the Grand Babylon, but they are not emulous, and they do not imitate. At their most adventurous, they would lunch or dine in the neutral region of the grill-room at the Grand Babylon. As for Wilkins's, in Devonshire Square, which is infinitely better known among princes than in the five towns, and whose name is affectionately pronounced with a V by half the monarchs of Europe, few industrial provincials had ever seen it. The class, which is the backbone of England, left it serenely alone to royalty and the aristocratic parasites of royalty. "'I don't see why they shouldn't have him,' said Edward Henry, as he lifted a challenging nose in the air. "'Perhaps you don't, Alderman,' said Brindley. "'I wouldn't mind going to Wilkins's,' Edward Henry persisted. "'I'd like to see you,' said Brindley, with curt scorn. "'Well,' said Edward Henry, "'I'll bet you a fiver I do.' Had he not won eighteen pence halfpenny, and was he not securely at peace with his wife? I don't bet favours, said the cautious Brindley, but I'll bet you half a crown. Done, said Edward Henry. When will you go? Either today or tomorrow. I must go to the Majestic first because I've ordered a room and so on. Ha! hurled Brindley as if to insinuate that Edward Henry was seeking to escape from the consequences of his boast. And yet he ought to have known Edward Henry. He did know Edward Henry, and he hoped to lose his half-crown. On his face, and on the faces of the other two, was the cheerful admission that tales of the doings of Alderman Matchen, the great local card at Wilkins's, if he succeeded in getting in, would be cheap, at half a crown. Porters cried out, Yostan! 2. It was rather late in the afternoon when Edward Henry arrived in front of the façade of Wilkins's. He came in a taxicab, and though the distance from the Majestic to Wilkins's is not more than a couple of miles, and he had had nothing else to preoccupy him after lunch, he had spent some three hours in the business of transferring himself from the portals of the one hotel to the portals of the other. Two hours and three quarters of this period of time had been passed in finding courage merely to start. Even so, he had left his luggage behind him. He said to himself that, first of all, he would go and spy out Wilkins's. In the perilous work of scouting, he rightly wished to be unhampered by impedimenta, Moreover, in case of repulse or accident, he must have a base of operations upon which he could retreat in good order. He now looked on Wilkins's for the first time in his life, and he was even more afraid of it than he had been while thinking about it in the vestibule of the Majestic. It was not larger than the Majestic. It was, perhaps, smaller. He could not show more terracotta, plate-glass, and sculptured cornice than the majestic, but it had a demeanour, and it was in a square which had a demeanour, in every window-sill, not only of the hotel, but of nearly every mighty house in the square, 
there were boxes of bright blooming flowers these he could plainly distinguish in the october dusk and they were a wonderful phenomenon say what you will about the mildness of that particular october a sublime tranquillity reigned over the scene a liveried keeper was locking the gate of the garden in the middle of the square as if potentates had just quitted it and rendered it for ever sacred and between the sacred shadowed grove and the inscrutable fronts of the stately houses there flitted automobiles of the silent and expensive kind driven by chauffeurs in pale grey or dark purple who reclined as they stared and who were supported on their left sides by footmen who reclined as they contemplated the grandeur of existence edward henry's taxicab in that square seemed like a homeless cat that had strayed into a dog show at the exact instant when the taxicab came to rest under the massive portico of wilkins's a chamberlain in white gloves bravely sawed the gloves by seizing the vile brass handle of its door he bowed to edward henry and assisted him to alight onto a crimson carpet the driver of the taxi glanced with pert and candid scorn at the chamberlain but edward henry looked demurely aside and then in abstraction mounted the broad carpeted steps what about poor little me cried the driver who was evidently a ribald socialist or at best a republican the chamberlain pained glanced at edward henry for support and direction in this crisis didn't i tell you i'd keep you said edward henry raised now by the steps above the driver between you and me you didn't said the driver the chamberlain with an ineffable gesture wafted the taxicab away into some limbo appointed for waiting vehicles a page opened a pair of doors and another page opened another pair of doors each with eighteenth-century ceremonies of deference and edward henry stood at length in the hall of wilkins's the sanctuary then was successfully defiled and up to the present nobody had demanded his credentials he took breath in its physical aspects wilkins's appeared to him to resemble other hotels such as the majestic and so far he was not mistaken once wilkins's had not resembled other hotels for many years it had deliberately refused to recognize that even the nineteenth century had dawned and its magnificent antique discomfort had been one of its main attractions to the elect for the elect desired nothing but their own privileged society in order to be happy in a hotel a hip bath on a blanket in the middle of the bedroom floor richly sufficed them provided they could be guaranteed against the calamity of meeting the unelect in the corridors or at table d'hote but the rising waters of democracy the intermixture of classes had reacted adversely on wilkins's the fall of the emperor maximilian of mexico had given wilkins's sad food for thought long long ago and the obvious general weakening of the monarchical principle had most considerably shaken it came the day when wilkins's reluctantly decided that even it could not fight 
against the tendency of the whole world and then at one superb stroke it had rebuilt and brought itself utterly up to date thus it resembled other hotels save possibly in the reticence of its advertisements the majestic would advertise bathrooms as the miracle of modernity just as though common dwelling-houses had not possessed bathrooms for the past thirty years wilkins's had superlative bathrooms but it said nothing about them wilkins's would as soon have advertised two hundred bathrooms as two hundred bolsters and for the new wilkins's a bathroom was not more modern than a bolster also other hotels resembled wilkins's the majestic too had a chamberlain at its portico and an assortment of pages to prove to its clients that they were incapable of performing the simplest act for themselves nevertheless the difference between wilkins's and the majestic was enormous and yet so subtle was it that edward henry could not immediately detect where it resided then he understood the difference between wilkins's and the majestic resided in a theory which underlay its manner and the theory was that every person entering its walls was of royal blood until he had admitted the contrary within the hotel it was already night edward henry self-consciously crossed the illuminated hall which was dotted with fashionable figures he knew not whither he was going until by chance he saw a golden grill with the word reception shining over it in letters of gold behind this grill and still further protected by an impregnable mahogany counter stood three young dandies in attitudes of graceful ease he approached them the fearful moment was upon him he had never in his life been so genuinely frightened abject disgrace might be his portion within the next ten seconds addressing himself to the dandy in the middle he managed to articulate what have you got in the way of rooms could the five towns have seen him then as he waited it would hardly have recognized its card its character its mirror of aplomb and inventive audacity in this figure of provincial and plebeian diffidence the dandy bowed do you want the sweet sir certainly said edward henry rather too quickly rather too defiantly in fact rather rudely an habitué would not have so savagely hurled back in the dandy's teeth the insinuation that he wanted only one poultry room however the dandy smiled accepting with meekness edward henry's sudden arrogance and consulted a sort of pentateuch that was open in front of him no person in the hall saw edward henry's hat fly up into the air and fall back on his head but in the imagination of edward henry that is what his hat did he was saved he would have a proud tale for brindley the thing was as simple as the alphabet you just walked in and they either fell on your neck or kissed your feet wilkins's indeed a very handsome footman not only in white gloves but in white calves was soon supplicating him to deign to enter a lift and when he emerged from the lift 
another dandy, in a frock-coat of paradise, was awaiting him with obeisances. Apparently, it had not yet occurred to anybody that he was not the younger son of some aged king. He was prayed to walk into a gorgeous suite consisting of a corridor, a noble drawing-room, with portrait of His Majesty of Spain on the walls, a large bedroom with two satinwood beds, a small bedroom, and a bathroom, all gleaming with patent devices in porcelain and silver that fully equalled those at home. Asked if this suite would do, he said it would, trying as well as he could to imply that he had seen better. Then the dandy produced a notebook and a pencil, and impassively waited. The horrid fact that he was unelect could no longer be concealed. E. H. Matchen, Bursley, he said shortly, and added, Alderman Matchen. After all, why should he be ashamed of being an alderman? To his astonishment, the dandy smiled very cordially, though always with profound respect. Ah, yes, said the dandy. It was as though he had said, We have long wished for the high patronage of this great reputation. Edward Henry could make naught of it. His opinion of Wilkins's went down. He followed the departing dandy up the corridor to the door of the suite in an entirely vain attempt to inquire the price of the suite per day. Not a syllable would pass his lips. The dandy bowed and vanished. Edward Henry stood lost at his own door, and his wandering eye caught sight of a pile of trunks near to another door in the main corridor. These trunks gave him a terrible shock. He shut out the rest of the hotel, and retired into his private corridor to reflect. He perceived only too plainly that his luggage, now the Majestic, never could come into Wilkins's. It was not fashionable enough. It lacked elegance. The lounge suite that he was wearing might serve, but his luggage was totally impossible. Never before had he imagined that the aspect of one's luggage could have the least importance in one's scheme of existence. He was learning, and he frankly admitted that he was in an incomparable mess. 3. At the end of an extensive stroll through and round his new vast domain, he had come to no decision upon a course of action. Certain details of the strange adventure pleased him, as, for instance, the dandy's welcoming recognition of his name. That, though puzzling, was a source of comfort to him in his difficulties. He also liked the suite. Nay, more, he was much impressed by its gorgeousness, and such novel complications as the forked electric switches, all of which he turned on, and the double windows, one within the other, appealed to the domestic expert in him. Indeed, he, at once, had the idea of doubling the windows of the best bedroom at home. To do so would be a fierce blow to the Five Towns Electric Traction Company, which, as everybody knew, delighted to keep everybody awake at night, and at dawn, by means of his late and early tramcars. However, he could not wander up and down the glittering solitude of his extensive suite for ever. Something must be done. Then he had the notion of writing to Nellie. 
he had promised himself to write to her daily moreover he would pass the time and perhaps help him to some resolution he sat down to a delicate louis the sixteenth desk on which lay a bible a peerage a telephone book a telephone a lamp and much distinguished stationery between the tasselled folds of plushy curtains that pleated themselves with the grandeur of painted curtains in a theatre he glanced out at the lights of devonshire square from which not a sound came then he lit the lamp and unscrewed his fountain pen my dear wife that was how he always began whether in storm or sunshine nelly always began my darling husband but he was not a man to fling darlings about few husbands in the five towns are he thought darling but he never wrote it and he never said it save quizzingly after these three words the composition of the letter came to a pause what was he going to tell nelly he assuredly was not going to tell her that he had engaged an unpriced suite at wilkins's he was not going to mention wilkins's then he intelligently perceived that the note-paper and also the envelope mentioned wilkins's in no ambiguous manner he tore up the sheet and searched for plain paper now on the desk there was the ordinary hotel stationery morning stationery cards letter cards and envelopes for every mood but not a piece that was not embossed with the historic name in royal blue the which appeared to edward henry to point to a defect of foresight on the part of wilkins's at the gigantic political club to which he belonged and which he had occasionally visited in order to demonstrate to himself and others that he was a clubman plain stationery was everywhere provided for the use of husbands with the taste for reticence why not at wilkins's also on the other hand why should he not write to his wife on wilkins's paper was he afraid of his wife he was not would not the news ultimately reach bursley that he had stayed at wilkins's it would nevertheless he could not find the courage to write to nelly on wilkins's paper he looked around he was fearfully alone he wanted the companionship were it only momentary of something human he decided to have a look at a flunkey and he rang a bell immediately just as though wafted thither on a magic carpet from the court of austria a gentleman-in-waiting arrived in the doorway of the drawing-room planted himself gracefully on his black silk calves and bowed i want some plain note-paper please very good sir oh perfection of tone and mien three minutes later the plain note-paper and envelopes were being presented to edward henry on a salver as he took them he looked inquiringly at the gentleman-in-waiting who supported his gaze with an impenetrable invulnerable servility edward henry beaten off with great loss thought there's nothing doing here just now in the human companionship line and assumed the mask of an hereditary prince the black calves carried away their immaculate living burden set above all earthly ties he wrote nicely to nelly about the weather and the journey and informed her also that london seemed as full as ever and that he might go to the theatre but he wasn't sure 
he dated the letter from the majestic he heard mysterious disturbing footfalls in his private corridor and after trying for some time to ignore them he was forced by a vague alarm to investigate their origin a short middle-aged pallid man with a long nose and long moustaches wearing a red and black striped sleeved waistcoat and a white apron was in the corridor at the turk's head such a person would have been the boots but edward henry remembered a notice under the bell advising visitors to ring once for the waiter twice for the chambermaid and three times for the valet this then was the valet and certain picturesque details of costume wilkins's was coquettishly french what is it he demanded i came to see if your luggage had arrived sir no doubt your servant is bringing it can i be of any assistance to you the man thoughtfully twirled one end of his moustache it was an appalling fault in demeanour but the man was proud of his moustache the first human being i have met here thought edward henry attracted too by a gleam in the eye of this eternal haunter of corridors his servant he saw that something must be done and quickly wilkins's provided valets for emergencies but obviously it expected visitors to bring their own valets in addition obviously existence without a private valet was inconceivable to wilkins's the fact is said edward henry i am in a very awkward situation he hesitated seeking to and fro in his mind for particulars of the situation sorry to hear that sir yes a very awkward position he hesitated again i'd booked passages for myself and my valet on the minnetonka sailing from tilbury at noon to-day and sent him on in front with my stuff and at the last moment i've been absolutely prevented from sailing you see how awkward it is i haven't a thing here it is indeed sir and i suppose he's gone on sir of course he has he wouldn't find out till after she sailed that he wasn't on board you know the crush and confusion there is on those big liners just before they start edward henry had once assisted under very dramatic circumstances at the departure of a transatlantic liner from liverpool just so sir i've neither servant nor clothes he considered that so far he was doing admirably indeed the tale could not have been bettered he thought his hope was that the fellow would not have the idea of consulting the shipping intelligence in order to confirm the departure of the minnetonka from tilbury that day possibly the minnetonka never had sailed and never would sail from tilbury possibly she had been sold years ago he had selected the first ship's name that came into his head what did it matter my man he added to clinch the proper word man had only just occurred to him my man can't be back again under three weeks at the soonest the valet made one half-eager step towards him if you're wanting a temporary valet sir my son's out of a place at the moment through no fault of his own he's a very good valet sir and soon learns a gentleman's ways yes said edward henry judiciously but could he come at once 
That's the point. And he looked at his watch, as if to imply that another hour without a valet would be more than human nature could stand. I could have him round here in less than an hour, sir, said the hotel valet, comprehending the gesture. He's at Norwich, Mews, Berkeley Square way, sir. Edward Henry hesitated. Very well, then, he said commandingly. Send for him. Let me see him, he thought. Dash it. I'm at Wilkins's. I will be at Wilkins's. Certainly, sir. Thank you very much, sir. The hotel valet was retiring when Edward Henry called him back. Stop a moment. I'm just going out. Help me on with me overcoat, will you? The man jumped. And you might get me a toothbrush, Edward Henry airily suggested. And I've a letter for the post. As he walked down Devonshire Square in the dark, he hummed a tune. Certain sign that he was self-conscious, uneasy, and yet not unhappy. At a small but expensive hosier's in a side street, he bought a shirt and a suit of pyjamas, and also permitted himself to be tempted by a special job-line of hair-brushes that the hosier had in his fancy department. On hearing the powerful word, Wilkins's, the hosier promised with passionate obsequiousness that the goods should be delivered instantly. Edward Henry cooled his excitement by an extended stroll, and finally re-entered the outer hall of the hotel at half-past seven and sat down therein to see the world. He knew by instinct that the boldest lounge suit must not at that hour penetrate further into the public rooms of Wilkins's. The world at its haughtiest was driving up to Wilkins's to eat its dinner in the unrivalled restaurant, and often guests staying at the hotel came into the outer hall to greet invited friends and Edward Henry was so overfaced by visions of woman's brilliance and man's utter correctness that he scarcely knew where to look. So apologetic was he for his grey lounge suit and the creases in his boots. In less than a quarter of an hour he appreciated, with painful clearness, that his entire conception of existence had been wrong, and that he must begin again at the beginning. Nothing in his luggage at the Majestic would do. His socks would not do, nor his shoes, nor the braid on his trousers, nor his cufflinks, nor his ready-made white bow, nor the number of studs in the shirt-front, nor the collar of his coat. Nothing, nothing. Tomorrow would be a full day. He ventured apologetically into the lift. In his private corridor a young man respectfully waited, hat in hand, the paternal red and black waistcoat by his side for purposes of introduction. The young man was wearing a rather shabby blue suit, but a rich and distinguished overcoat that fitted him ill. In another five minutes Edward Henry had engaged a skilled valet, aged twenty-four, name Joseph with a testimonial of efficiency from Sir Nicholas Winkworth, Bart, at a salary of one pound a week, and all found. Joseph seemed to await instructions, and Edward Henry was placed in a new quandary. 
he knew not whether the small bedroom in the suite was for a child or for his wife's maid or for his valet quite probably it would be a sacrilegious defiance of precedent to put a valet in the small bedroom quite probably wilkins's had a floor for private valets in the roof again quite probably the small bedroom might be after all specially destined for valets he could not decide and the most precious thing in the universe to him in that crisis was his reputation as a man about town in the eyes of joseph but something had to be done you sleep in this room said edward henry indicating the door i may want you in the night yes sir said joseph i presume you dine up here sir said joseph glancing at the lounge suit his father had informed him of his new master's predicament i shall said edward henry you must get the menu four he had a very bad night indeed owing no doubt partly to a general uneasiness in his unusual surroundings and partly also to a special uneasiness caused by the propinquity of a sleeping valet but the main origin of it was certainly his dreadful anxiety about the question of a first-class tailor in the organization of his new life a first-class tailor was essential and he was not acquainted with a first-class london tailor he did not know a great deal concerning clothes though quite passably well dressed for a provincial but he knew enough to be sure that it was impossible to judge the merits of a tailor by his signboard and therefore that if wandering the precincts of bond street he entered the first establishment that looked likely he would have a good chance of being done in the eye so he phrased it to himself as he lay in bed he wanted a definite and utterly reliable address he rang the bell only as it happened to be the wrong bell he obtained the presence of joseph in a roundabout way through the agency of a gentleman in waiting such however is the human faculty of adaptation to environment that he was merely amused in the morning by an error which on the previous night would have put him into a sweat good morning sir said joseph edward henry nodded his hands under his head as he lay on his back he decided to leave all initiative to joseph the man drew up the blinds and closing the double windows at the top opened them very wide at the bottom it is a rainy morning sir said joseph letting in vast quantities of air from devonshire square clearly sir nicholas winkworth had been a breezy master oh murmured edward henry he felt a careless contempt for joseph's flunkeyism hitherto he had had a theory that footmen valets and all male personal attendants were an inexcusable excrescence on the social fabric the mere sight of them often angered him though for some reason he had no objection whatever to servility in a nice-looking maid indeed rather enjoyed it but now in the person of joseph he saw that there were human or half-human beings born to self-abasement and that if their destiny was to be fulfilled valetry was a necessary institution he had no pity for joseph no shame in employing him he scorned joseph 
and yet his desire, as a man about town, to keep Joseph's esteem, was in no way diminished. "'Shall I prepare your bath, sir?' asked Joseph, stationed in a supple attitude by the side of the bed. Edward Henry was visited by an idea. "'Have you had yours?' he demanded, like a pistol shot. Edward Henry saw that Sir Nicholas had never asked that particular question. "'No, sir. Not had your bath, man. What do you mean by it? Go, and have your bath at once.' A faint, sycophantic smile lightened the amazed features of Joseph. And Edward Henry thought, "'It's astonishing all the same, the way they can read their masters. This chap has seen already that I'm a card.' "'And yet, oh!' "'Yes, sir,' said Joseph. "'Have your bath in the bathroom here, "'and be sure to leave everything in order for me.' "'Yes, sir.' As soon as Joseph had gone, Edward Henry jumped out of bed and listened. He heard the discreet Joseph respectfully push the bolt of the bathroom door. Then he crept with noiseless rapidity to the small bedroom, and was aware therein of a lack of order and of ventilation. The rich and distinguished overcoat was hanging on the brass knob at the foot of the bed. He seized it, and, scrutinising the loop, read in yellow letters, Quayther and Cuthering, 47 Vigo Street, West. He knew that Quayther and Cuthering must be the tailors of Sir Nicholas Winkworth, and hence first class. Hoping for the best, and putting his trust in the general decency of human nature, he did not trouble himself with the problem. Was the overcoat a gift, or an appropriation? But he preferred to assume the generosity of Sir Nicholas, rather than the dishonesty of Joseph. Repassing the bathroom door, he knocked loudly on his glass. "'Don't be all day!' he cried. He was in a hurry now. An hour later, he said to Joseph, "'I'm going down to Quayther and Cotherings.' "'Yes, sir,' said Joseph, obviously much reassured. "'Nincompoop!' Edward Henry exclaimed secretly. "'The fool thinks better of me because my tailors are first class.' But Edward Henry had failed to notice that he himself was thinking better of himself because he had adopted first-class tailors. Beneath the main door of his suite, as he went forth, he found a business card of the West End Electric Brougham Supply Agency, and downstairs, solely to impress his individuality on the hall porter, he showed the card to that vizier with a casual question, "'These people any good?' "'An excellent firm, sir. What do they charge? By the week, sir?' He hesitated. "'Yes, by the week.' Twenty guineas, sir. Well, you may telephone for one. Can you get it at once? Certainly, sir. The vizier turned towards the telephone in his lair. I say, said Edward Henry, sir, I suppose one will be enough. Well, sir, as a rule, yes, said the vizier calmly. Sometimes I get a couple for one family, sir. Though he had started jocularly, Edward Henry finished by blenching. 
Uh, I think one will do. I may possibly send for my own car. He drove to Quayther and Cuthering's in his electric brougham, and there dropped casually the name of Winkworth. He explained, humorously, his singular misadventure of the Minnetonka, and was very successful therewith, so successful indeed, that he actually began to believe in the reality of the adventure himself, and had an irrational impulse to dispatch a wireless message to his bewildered valet on board the Minnetonka. Subsequently, he paid other fruitful visits in the neighbourhood, and at about half-past eleven the fruit was arriving at Wilkins's, in the shape of many parcels and boxes, comprising diverse items in the equipment of a man about town, such as tie-clips and innovation trunks. Returning late to Wilkins's for lunch, he marched jauntily into the large brilliant restaurant and commenced an adequate repast. Of course, he was still wearing his mediocre lounge suit, his sole suit for another two days, but somehow the consciousness that Quayther and Cutherings were cutting out wondrous garments for him in Vigo Street stiffened his shoulders and gave a mysterious style to that lounge suit. At lunch he made one mistake and enjoyed one very remarkable piece of luck. The mistake was to order an artichoke. He did not know how to eat an artichoke. He had never tried to eat an artichoke, and his first essay in this difficult and complex craft was a sad fiasco. It would not have mattered if, at the table next to his own, there had not been two obviously experienced women, one ill-dressed, with a red hat, the other well-dressed, with a blue hat, one middle-aged, the other much younger, but both very observant. And, even so, it would scarcely have mattered had not the younger woman been so slim, pretty, and alluring. While tolerably careless of the opinion of the red-hatted plain woman of middle age, he desired the unqualified approval of the delightful young thing in the blue hat. They certainly interested themselves in his manoeuvres with the artichoke, and their amusement was imperfectly concealed. He forgave the blue hat, but considered that the red hat ought to have known better. They could not be princesses, nor even titled aristocrats. He supposed them to belong to some baccarat-playing county family. The piece of luck consisted in the passage down the restaurant of the Countess of Chell, who had been lunching there with a party, and whom he had known locally in more gusty days. The Countess bowed stiffly to the red hat, and the red hat responded with eager fulsomeness. It seemed to be here as it no longer was in the five towns. Everybody knew everybody. The red hat and the blue might be titled, after all, he thought. Then, by sheer accident, the Countess caught sight of him and stopped dead, bringing her escort to a standstill behind her. Edward Henry blushed and rose. "'Is it you, Mr. Matchen?' murmured the still lovely creature warmly. They shook hands. Never had social pleasure so thrilled him. The conversation was short. He did not presume on the past. He knew that here he was not on his own ash-pit, 
as they say in the five towns. The countess and her escort went forward. Edward Henry sat down again. He gave the red and the blue hats one calm glance, which they failed to withstand. The affair of the artichoke was forever wiped out. After lunch he went forth again in his electric brougham. The weather had cleared. The opulent streets were full of pride and sunshine, and, as he penetrated into one shop after another, receiving kowtows, obeisances, curtsies, homage, surrender, resignation, submission, he gradually comprehended that it takes all sorts to make a world, and that those who are called to greatness must accept with dignity the ceremonials inseparable from greatness, and the world had never seemed to him so fine, nor any adventure so diverting and uplifting as this adventure. When he returned to his suite, his private corridor was piled up with a numerous and excessively attractive assortment of parcels. Joseph took his overcoat and hat and a new umbrella, and placed an easy chair conveniently for him in the drawing-room. "'Get my bill,' he said shortly to Joseph, as he sank into the gilded forty. "'Yes, sir.' One advantage of a valet, he discovered, is that you can order him to do things which to do yourself would more than exhaust your moral courage. The black-carved gentleman-in-waiting brought the bill. It lay on the salver, and was folded, conceivably so as to break the shock of it to the recipient. Edward Henry took it. "'Wait a minute,' he said. He read on the bill. Apartment, eight pounds. Dinner, one pound two shillings. Breakfast, six shillings and sixpence. Lunch, eighteen shillings. Half shabbly, six shillings and sixpence. Valet's board, ten shillings. Toothbrush, two shillings and sixpence. "'That's a bit thick. Half a crown for that toothbrush,' he said to himself. "'However—' The next instant he blenched once more. "'Gush!' he privately exclaimed as he read. "'Paid driver of taxicab, two pounds, three shillings, and sixpence?' He had forgotten the taxi, but he admired the sang-froid of Wilkins's, which paid such trifles as a matter of course without deigning to disturb a guest by an inquiry. Wilkins's arose again in his esteem. The total of the bill exceeded thirteen pounds. "'All right,' he said to the gentleman in waiting. "'Are you leaving today, sir?' the being permitted himself to ask. "'Of course I'm not leaving today. Haven't I hired an electric brougham for a week?' Edward Henry burst out. "'But I suppose I'm entitled to know how much I'm spending?' The gentleman-in-waiting humbly bowed and departed. Alone in the splendid chamber, Edward Henry drew out a swollen pocket-book and examined its crisp, crinkly contents, which made a beauteous and a reassuring sight. Poof, he muttered. He reckoned he would be living at the rate of about fifteen pounds a day, or five thousand five hundred a year. He did not count the cost of his purchases, because they were in the nature of a capital expenditure. Cheap, he muttered, 
for once i'm about living up to my income the sensation was exquisite in its novelty he ordered tea and afterwards feeling sleepy he went fast asleep he awoke to the ringing of the telephone bell it was quite dark the telephone bell continued to ring joseph he called the valet entered what time is it after ten o'clock sir the juice it is he had slept over four hours well answer that confounded telephone joseph obeyed it's a mr bryany sir if i catch the name right said joseph bryany for twenty-four hours he had scarcely thought of bryany or the option either bring the telephone here said edward henry the card would just reach to his chair hello bryany is that you cried edward henry gaily and then he heard the weakened voice of mr bryany in his ear how do you do mr mutchin i've been after you for the better part of two days and now i find you staying in the same hotel as mr Sachs and me oh said edward henry he understood now why on the previous day the dandy introducing him to his suite had smiled a welcome at the name of alderman matchen while joseph had accepted so naturally the command to take a bath bryany had been talking bryany had been recounting his exploits as a card the voice of bryany in his ear continued look here i've got miss euclid here and some friends of hers of course she wants to see you at once can you come down Ah, uh, he hesitated he could not come down he would have no evening wear till the next day but one said the voice of bryany what i can't said edward henry i'm not very well but listen all of you come up to my rooms here and have supper will you sweet forty-eight i'll ask the lady said the voice of bryany altered now and a few seconds later we're coming joseph edward henry gave orders rapidly as he took up his coat and removed the pocket-book from it i'm ill you understand anyhow not well take this handing him the coat and bring me the new dressing-gown out of that green cardboard box from rollitt's i think it is and then get the supper menu i'm very hungry i've had no dinner within sixty seconds he sat in state wearing a grandiose yellow dressing-gown the change was accomplished just in time mr bryany entered and not only mr bryany but mr seven sachs but the lady who had worn a red hat at lunch miss rose euclid said mr bryany puffing and bending End of chapter 3